Well, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 65. Uh, for a while, we have been going through the Psalms in order. On the first Sundays of the month, we took a little bit of a break from that uh, a few months ago, but we're getting back into that now. So if you want to turn, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Psalm 65, and if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word today. Give ear to the word of God. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song, praise is due to you, O God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray uh, once again and ask God to teach us his word and help us understand these things that we find here in Psalm 65. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark, to try to figure out on our own who you are, what you are like, and the way of salvation through faith in Christ, and the way that you would have us to live out of gratitude for that salvation and mercy that you give us in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would once again be pleased uh, by your mercy and kindness to work in us by your Holy Spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, Lord. Uh, speak, O Lord, for your servants here, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 65, as you could probably tell, is uh, simply a psalm of praise to God. It's a psalm of praise to God. You could, you could summarize Psalm 65, the message of this psalm, uh, and it's what I've done with the, with the title of the sermon. You could summarize it with that first line that we sing when we sing the doxology so often on the Lord's Day. And what is the first line that you sing? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's Psalm 65 in a nutshell. You know, we often look, rightly, often look for application uh, what, what are we supposed to do from any, any text of Scripture we look at, especially when it comes to the preaching of the Word on the Lord's Day? You know, a sermon, it's been said that a sermon isn't really a sermon if there's no application. It might be a nice speech. It might be something like that. But with it, if there's no application at all, it's something less than a sermon. We should ask ourselves every time we come to the Word, especially here uh, when it comes to the ministry of the word, we should ask, what would this passage of God's word have me to do in response? 
What should what should go? What would God have me do from this text? In fact, uh, without having that kind of a question asked and answered, it's it's very doubtful that true preaching or true listening has really taken place. You know, there, there's a difference between a speech and a sermon. Uh, R. L. Dabney, that great uh, 19th century Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian. Theologian has a book on preaching called Evangelical Eloquence, and there he writes this. The end of every oration, a speech, is to make men do. When, when you're hearing a speech, whether it be politics or something, usually there's a purpose to it. They want you to do a particular thing. The end of every oration is to make men do, but the things which the sermon would make men do are only the things of God. Therefore, it must apply to them the authority of God. If your discourse urges the hearer merely with excellent reasons and inducements, natural, ethical, social, legal, political, self-interested, philanthropic, if it does not end by bringing their wills under the direct grasp of a thus saith the Lord, it is not a sermon, it has degenerated into a speech. Sometimes a sermon can degenerate into a speech. Not only does a sermon have to have an application, from, but it has to have an application from the text. There has to be a sense of this would be a good idea, not just that. A sermon shouldn't be this would be good if you did such and such. It should be thus saith the Lord. Our God would have us do or believe or say such and such. That is what a sermon is, ought to be. So a sermon, a real sermon uh, from any text ought to make the truth of that scripture known plainly and clearly, and in order to apply it to our lives in the way that the text itself demands. Anything other than that is not true biblical preaching. And so what's the application of Psalm 65? If we're going to preach and hear a sermon on Psalm 65, what's the application? What are What is Psalm 65? What would God have us to do in light of the words of this psalm? The applications of this psalm are many. Maybe you could think of a number of them as, as I was reading it here just a few moments ago. Uh, but the most obvious one might escape your notice because it is so obvious. It's, it's staring us in the face right in the very first verse. Look at verse 1. David there says, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. The King James Version puts it this way, Praise waiteth for thee, or waits. Praise waits for God in Zion. Praise waits for God. In other words, God will be praised. It is his just due. God deserves our praise at all times. It is fitting. Psalm 33.1 says, Praise befits the upright. It's fitting. What's the old, was it an old oatmeal commercial? It's the right thing to do. It's, it's fitting. It's something that, that we ought to do. It ought to be common sense, although it often is not. Psalm 113.3 says this, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In other words, all day. I, you know, We sometimes have trouble doing it for an hour and a half on Sundays. All day, from the rising of the sun to the crack of dawn to its setting, the name of God is to be praised. We, we literally don't have enough time in a day, it says there, to render unto our God the praise that he so richly and rightly deserves for his glory and his grace, for his mercy and for his might. So you could say that praise, praise to God, is the primary application in many ways of this psalm. 
it is an application, praising God. So let us look at this wonderful psalm of David this morning together that the word of God might teach us and equip us to praise the Lord as we ought to do even today. One one commentator has offered a, a brief and helpful summary of this psalm and how it's structured. He says this, Its structure is clear. It begins with a declaration that God is the one who answers prayer and then shows three ways in which this prayer is answered, or really three kinds of prayer that God often answers. I would only add that in showing us these three ways that God answers prayer, uh, what, what it's doing is it's, it's, uh, it's showing us three reasons why we should praise God. In other words, Psalm 65 is saying, God deserves our praise. It's his due because not only does God hear and answer prayer, here are three kinds of prayer that God has often answered and still answers uh, his people in this life. So what, what David is doing here, I think he's doing this for himself first, but he's doing this also for us. It's written, the scriptures are written for our benefit by God's grace. David is giving us fuel to fire our praises. Now, you ever you ever go camping and you have a campfire and it starts kind of going going down and going out? What do you do? You add fuel to it. You might poke it and prod it with a poker, kind of you know mix it up a little bit, but you add fuel to it to get the fire to burn back up. Well, I hope my hope is this morning that this psalm will do a little bit of that in us, that it will add some fuel to the fire to help us have our hearts warmed again, that we might praise God the way that we ought to do. Well, the, the first thing that we're taught to praise God for in this in this psalm, we are taught to praise God for His saving grace. We're taught to praise God for his saving grace. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 6, that our salvation in Christ is, quote, to the praise of his glorious grace. What is the end or the goal or the purpose of our salvation? What should it naturally lead to, according to Paul there? The praise of his glorious grace. And that's what we are going to look at here in this psalm. In verse 2, look there. David says, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When I, when I first started looking at the psalm to prepare for, for preaching this Lord's Day, that's the, that's the phrase that jumped off the page at me. That David calls God, lots of titles for God in Scripture that God gives to himself in, in his word. But David says, Oh, you who hear prayer. Does that title for God not fill your heart with comfort and peace? That we serve a God, not just a God who's almighty, but a God who actually hears your prayers. When we pray here just this morning, it wasn't wasted time. It wasn't wasted effort or breath. God hears prayer. What a blessing it is to serve a God who hears prayer. He doesn't just hear prayer. He hears your prayers. He hears my prayers. And hearing implies answering, doesn't it? Hearing implies answering. This isn't just the... The hearing of God's omniscience, you know, God's omniscience meaning that God knows all things, and because he knows all things, well, of course he heard my prayer. He's aware of what I said. He's aware of my needs that I talked about even before I pray. It's, it's more than that. When the Bible talks about God hearing prayer, it implies that God is willing and able to both hear and answer our prayers. First John 5, verses 14 to 15 says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he adds, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. As a believer in Christ, if you know God has heard you, it implies that God will also answer you. And if we pray according to anything according to His will, He hears and will answer. Do you, do you know God? That's a good description of a Christian, is someone who knows God through Christ. Do you know God through faith in Jesus Christ? And if so, you should know that, you should know Him as your God and as the God who answers, hears and answers prayer. Does God answer your prayers? Is that one of the, the comforts that you find in your daily life as a Christian? And, and notice this, what's the first example? It's one thing for David to say, oh, you who hear prayer. What's the first kind of prayer that David points to to say that God answers? What, what is the prayer that God answers that David is so full of praise to God about? Look at verses 3 to 4. He says, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. When iniquities prevail against me. You know, David, I'm sure, prayed for lots of things. He prayed for deliverance from his enemies. He prayed for deliverance in the Psalms. You read of his requests. He prays that God would deliver him from the hand of Saul, from the Philistines, from his enemies, from those who would conspire against him. But the first thing he thinks of in Psalm 65 is what? Not his enemies out there, his enemy in here. His own, not somebody else's iniquities against him, his own iniquities. He said, God, thank God that you answer prayer, and when my iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. David's worst enemy that he thought of, his worst affliction, his worst problem, uh, was his own iniquities. You know, I, I often say, uh, sometimes when I'm leading Bible studies and things, I say, you know, when you're, when you're a young Christian, whether or not you're a young person, when you're young in the faith, very often, the thing that, that, uh, that bothers you or vexes you the most, very often is someone else's sins. We're annoyed or put off by someone else's iniquities and sins. The more you grow in the faith, the more you start to notice your own iniquities and sins. And that your own iniquities and sins bother you more. They should bother you more than those of someone else. That's not to say you don't know. You're going to notice other people's sins. But the ones that should bother you the most are your own. And that's what David shows us by example here. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our sins. More than any other blessing of mercy and deliverance, the blessing of salvation from sin tops the list here in Psalm 65 and should top the, our list for reasons why we should praise God. When you read Psalm 103, we often I, always, I often think of that psalm. We, we sing a song based on that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless your holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In verse 2, I mean, David is, is reminding himself. He's, he's counseling himself and through Scripture counseling us, forget not all his benefits. Forget not all of God's blessings. What's the first blessing he mentions in Psalm 103? It's in the very next verse, verse 3. He forgives all your iniquity. God has blessed us with so many blessings, we can't begin to number them. But what's the first one that, that shows up in the Psalms, especially here and in Psalm 103, that God forgives all of our iniquities? 
Do you count the free forgiveness of your iniquities through faith in Jesus Christ as your chief blessing? Do you understand how great of a blessing it is? We talk about it a lot. We, we have a prayer of adoration and confession. We talk about receiving God's forgiveness. We pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think sometimes we take it for granted and don't appreciate it that, the way that we should. Nothing else matters without forgiveness. God could give you every other blessing under the sun. But if you don't have your sins forgiving, nothing nothing matters. Peace with God makes everything else right. Without peace with God, nothing else matters. It's To use the words of, of Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. It means nothing. You know, people often say that as long as you have your health, you have everything, right? But what good is health if you're still dead in your sins? You can have the healthiest body in the history of humanity, but if you're dead in your sins, it doesn't matter. If you're still at enmity with God and are still a child of wrath like the rest of mankind, your health doesn't add up to much. What good is material prosperity and living the good life and having all the good things of this life if you're not, to use the words of Luke 12, 21, if you're not rich toward God? Jesus himself says in Mark eight thirty six, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? His soul. Don't settle for having your daily bread or even the good things of this life without having the bread of life in Jesus Christ. Have you ever had iniquities, your iniquities, prevail against you? That's a rhetorical question. You have. Do you, do you, do you remember that? Do you know and remember what that feels like to have your iniquities get the upper hand against you? Well, I have good news for you. David did too. I mean, of all the people on this earth that could have kind of tucked away his problems and his iniquities and not putting them on, put them on paper for us to read in scripture, David tells the Lord and tells us that his iniquities at times prevailed against him. In fact, some of his iniquities are in the scriptures. You, we read about them. How thankful you should be that you aren't, uh, you know, they say heavy is the head that wears the crown. I mean, David's sins are there on display as a warning for us, but David knew what it felt like to have his iniquities prevail against him. And what did he not do when that happened? He did not let his iniquities keep him from the throne of grace. And neither should you. Sometimes that happens and we, we feel you know embarrassed and ashamed, and the last thing you want to do is go to the throne of grace and pray and go to God. And yet what did David do? He he looked to the atonement that God made for his sins, and he went to the throne of grace. In prayer. Don't let your iniquities keep you from God and from the throne of grace. Let them humble you and drive you back to the Lord for mercy, grace, and cleansing from sin. Now, how did God answer David's prayer about his iniquities? Look at verse 3 again. He says, You atone for our transgressions. God doesn't sweep the sins under the rug, so to speak. And nobody does that anymore, right? We don't, nobody actually ever does that, but you get the picture, right? You have a dirty floor, you have a rug, where do you put the dirt? Under the rug. That's not what God does. God atones for it. He pays for it. He removes the sin and the guilt from us by punishing his son in our place on the cross. God atoned for David's transgressions and for ours. God provided for himself the lamb for the sacrifice to cover our sin. He sent his only begotten son to pay the price, the full price for our sins, for our forgiveness. From sin, First John four ten puts it like this: It says, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's a propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. It's paying the full price to remove the wrath of God that's justly due us for our sins. Now, not not only should we praise God for his providing of atonement in his son uh, to provide atonement for our sins in Jesus Christ and his cross, but notice what else David points to. It's probably not the first thing you would think of, especially in the Old Testament and in the book of Psalms. He says we should praise God for his grace, not just in atonement, but in election as well. Look at verse 4. David says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Is election a New Testament doctrine only? No. Is God's predestination of sinners to grace and salvation in Christ just a New Testament doctrine? It's all through the Old Testament. When you read Romans 9, we talked about Romans 9 a little bit yesterday morning. Romans 9, that chapter that deals with election and predestination so thoroughly by the Apostle Paul, how does Paul establish the doctrine of election and predestination? Where does he point you to? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Pharaoh, and Moses, and all these different uh, people in the Old Testament. Their salvation was by God's grace and his free election of sinners unto salvation by faith in the Messiah who was to come. He says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. If God, if God had sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins, but had not chosen us, and brought us near by faith in Jesus Christ, we would still be strangers to God and would still be in our sins. Nobody would be in Christ. He would have sent his son to die for no one. Do you know in your heart of hearts this morning that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been saved from your sins, that even the faith by which you have been saved, your faith in Christ, even that is the gift of God. If it weren't for God's electing grace and bringing you to faith, you would not be a believer today. No one would be a believer today without that grace of God. In fact, in in Ephesians chapter 1, I'll leave you to read that chapter on your own, but in in chapter 1 of of Ephesians, verses 3 to 14, Paul talks about, you know, in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives a very long list of those blessings uh, that God has given us by his grace What's the first one he mentions? When he starts to to list the blessings God, God has given you by his grace, the very first one he mentions is election and predestination. In verse 4, Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says, Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why are you, if you're in Christ, why are you holy and blameless before God? Well, it's because he chose you to be in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world, not just before you were born, before day one of, of the universe. God had purposed to save a multitude of sinners, as, as Revelation tells us in chapter 7, that no man can count except God. What a blessing it is to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world and to have been chosen by his grace unto salvation. It's an amazing thing to think about. How do you know, here's the question, how do you know if you're elect? That's often a question people ask. Well, how do I know if God chooses, how do I know I'm one of God's elect and have been chosen by his grace 
unto salvation. Have you ever thought about that? How do you know if you have been chosen by God's grace unto salvation? Here's the easy answer. It's in the form of a question. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in Christ? Have you repented of your sins and turned to God by faith in Christ? If that is true of you, that is the evidence that you need of your election in God's grace before the foundation of the world. If, if God has chosen you, uh, how do you know? You know because you believe. If you believe, you are one of God's elect. Jesus says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws him. No one can. No one is able to on, on their own. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, not only does God choose and, and draw people to faith, but those whom he has chosen and draws unto faith, he will not lose one of them. He will raise them up on the last day. On your own, left to yourself, outside of Christ, you are dead in sin and unable to believe and unwilling to believe and come to Christ by faith. But what happens? God draws sinners to Christ by faith. Has God drawn you to faith in Christ? Has he drawn you to Christ to believe in him? If he has done that, then you can rest assured that God has chosen you, you in particular, before the foundation of the world. So we should praise God for his glorious grace and praise God for his saving grace from start to finish. If you ever feel your, your praise for God in your heart waxing cold, Think about your salvation by God's grace alone. What's the second thing that, that David points to in our text in this psalm as fuel to the fire of our praises unto God? He reminds us to praise God for his mighty power in creation and especially in his mighty acts of deliverance in this life. Look at verses 5 through 8. David says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. In other words, by, by awesome acts of his power, O God of our salvation, the hope... Of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, he uh, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening shout for joy. You know, I thought about that that last verse there where it talks about the ends of the earth the people who dwell at the ends of the earth being in awe at God's signs. And now I didn't feel it this weekend, but there was a lot of, a lot of to-do over a couple earthquakes or tremors that happened uh, in Southern California, and people were losing their minds on social media and posting about it and posting videos. And, and now, thankfully, not much damage seems to have been done. I don't, know if it, I don't know if there was any loss of life, but those things are little reminders of the power of God. Those are God's mighty acts. Now, I'm not saying that those earthquakes were answers to prayer, although they might have been. You never know. But, but uh, God's power, and especially his power in acts of judgment and deliverance, are things that we should praise him for. In fact, verse 5 in the King James says, uh, instead of uh, awesome deeds, it's by terrible things. Things that, that strike fear in the hearts of, of people. I think, I think these are acts of God's judgment, which he delivers his people by means of throughout uh, history. There are many examples of these kinds of things in the pages of scripture, as well as throughout the history of this world. Think of the one that uh, we read about earlier in the service, the, the Exodus. The Exodus was an, a, a mighty act or a mighty deed, a terrible act of God. 
in delivering his people. It was an act of judgment upon the enemies of his people. Uh, we read in, in, in the Ten Commandments that God brought his people, Israel, quote, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Exodus was an answer to prayer, wasn't it? Look at Exodus 2, verses 23 to 24. Listen to what it says there. Moses writes, Exodus 2, 23 to 24, he says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Who did they cry out to? God. It says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. They groaned, they cried out to God, and God took notice. And God heard, and God remembered his covenant. Now, God doesn't forget anything. But but it, it tells us what what he thought what he thought of the, his reasoning was was connected with his promise to Abraham Isaac and Jacob he remembered his covenant his promise to the patriarchs and what did he do he answered he delivered them from slavery with an outstretched arm through many acts of of his mighty power in the plagues especially that tenth one and in the Passover. Now, back in verse 2 of our text, God is spoken of as the one who hears prayer. Verse 5, he's described as the hope of all the ends of the earth. This is an open invitation to trust in the Lord and call upon him for salvation and deliverance. David's not just saying, here's what David is not saying. He's not saying, I'm special, God did this for me, but, you know, too bad for you. He's saying, God hears and answers prayer. God has delivered me and he's delivered his people, and he delivers anyone who calls upon him, even to the ends of the earth. That's how wide the offer of mercy goes. It's an open invitation to trust in God and call upon him for salvation and deliverance. Even in David's day, he knew that the blessings of salvation, that God's blessings were not to be restricted to one earthly nation or people. It's not to be restricted that way at all. Our God is still the hope of the ends of the earth. How often has God shown mercy through deliverance and and through bringing revival upon a land? If you read your history, you'll see these things over and over again. And we should praise him for it. You know, very often in the Psalms, the psalmist, David and others, they recount God's mighty acts in history. Very often they, they bring up the Exodus, but other times as well, and they praise him for it. You know, in history as well as in scriptural history, has God toppled tyrants at times? Has he brought deliverance for his people? Has God brought wicked rulers to ruin? Has he brought judgments upon a land for its wickedness? Then he is to be praised for those things. These things are are done, verse 8 says, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth may be in awe at his signs. God glorifies himself in answering our prayers the prayers of his people. God glorifies himself in in acts of judgment, in acts of delivering his people through those judgments. Well, what's the third and final thing uh, that David David points us to in this psalm as fuel to, to fire our praises to God? The third thing is God's providential care. God's providential care. In verses 9 to 10, David reminds us that God, quote, visits the earth and waters it. God visits the earth and waters it. In the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5.45, there he says that God, quote, makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Every drop of rain, everything that makes the crops grow and gives us food and bread to eat and the water of life that we so need, every last drop comes from where? Comes from whom? It comes from God. And we should acknowledge it as such. Everything we have, we, we have from God. Now, the wicked and the unbelieving take all of this for granted, don't they? They take all of it for granted. They certainly don't praise and thank God. They don't acknowledge God as God, nor do they thank Him, as, as Paul says in Romans 1. But, but the Christian, you and I, we should see God's hand in everything. We should see God's hand in everything. We should see, we should see the hand of God and His mercy in all of it. Because he makes all things work together for good. We of all the people on this earth must have the eyes of faith to see that all that you have, every drop of rain, every ear of corn, every bit of food we have, they come from the bounty of God's provision and his providential care for all people, especially for his people in Christ. Verse 11 says that God crowns the year with his bounty. Crowns the year with his bounty. We we praise God for that. We praise him for the amber waves of grain as we sing in one of the patriotic songs that we probably heard this past uh, week with the 4th of July with Independence Day. We praise God for the grace that he has shed upon our land throughout the years. God, and God is showing mercy right now. You know, if you, you look, I can't help but think when, it, when you read of, of God's judgments on, in the world throughout history and you think of the wickedness that is prevailing in our land, uh, it's nothing but God's mercy that he hasn't the axe hasn't fallen yet, that our country is still here and we are still here with the freedoms that we have. Praise God for that, for his mercy and kindness. I have no doubt that he is showing mercy because of his people, because of his people that are still here trying to serve him uh, in this time uh, in our lives. And we of all people must praise God for his mercies. We must praise God for his answers to our prayers. You know, we pray a lot, we see God's answers. Do we thank Him when we see those answers? We should. Do we praise God because we see that He answered those prayers? For His mercy and His might, He has atoned for our transgressions when our iniquities have prevailed against us, verses 1 through 4. For His deliverance of His people by awesome deeds, verses 5 through 8. And that He has crowned the year with His bounty in the last section of our psalm. Because of that, all of creation itself, not just us, all of creation, he says, shout and sing together for joy. It's like all the people in the world aren't enough to praise God as much as he deserves. The psalm actually kind of personifies creation itself. The, the fields and the meadows and everything shout and sing together for joy at God's answers, at God's bounty that he has crowned his creation with. To quote back to verse 1, praise is due to our God in Zion. May he receive all the glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May, may he teach us and equip us to give him the praises that he so richly deserves for his grace and his provision. Let's pray.